Welcome to the latest installment of Paradigm Shifts, uh, the official podcast of the National Foundation of Emergency Medicine. The purpose of this podcast is to create visibility for young and soon-to-be prolific emergency physicians in academics as well as for their research. We hope to introduce their ideas and research to you, the listener, and to redirect and expand your thinking toward the forefront of science and philosophy in emergency medicine. So today we have uh, two masters of airway, uh, Dr. John Sackles, airway man himself, and the original airway man, uh, Peter Rosen, who are going to talk about exactly those things. Uh, They're going to have a discussion about the history of airway management and how we got to where we're at right now. Uh, I have very little to say in this matter, and I'm going to hand it over immediately uh, to John Sackles and Peter Rosen. Thank you, Aaron. So we've come a long way with emergency airway management. Um, Now in 2018, we're using multiple different video learning scopes. We have flexible fiber optic scopes. We have superglottic airways. And uh, what I'd like to do is just kind of trace the history of emergency airway management from its inception when emergency medicine was just becoming a specialty and what things were like when we were trying to develop uh, emergency airway management in in our field. I think to understand the evolution, you have to go back even further. And part of the problem in the evolution of technology within medical practice is that too often it's reserved for people with certain credentials. And there is this myth that without the uh, training period to obtain those credentials, you can't use the technology. So when I was uh, first training as a general surgeon, we were not allowed to intubate unless we were in the operating room under the direct supervision of anesthesia. And every floor in our hospital had a laryngoscope, but it was locked up only to be unlocked by anesthesia. And if we uh, needed to do an emergency airway management, we did a tracheostomy. That was considered the uh, reasonable approach to airway management. Intubation was never quite fully accepted by most of medicine. It had been invented during World War I by the plastic surgeons who were trying to fix the badly wounded faces from the casualties from World War I. And obviously there were not the tremendous advantages of instrumentation and specifically the endotracheal tubes were initially all rubber and were quite irritating to the trachea. So there was an accepted practice that if you did intubate somebody, they couldn't have a tube in place for more than 48 hours before converting it to a tracheotomy. Cricotherotomy had not been reintroduced into medicine yet. It had fallen into disrepute because the original cricotherotomies were really supralaryngeal tracheostomies. And the famous 
ENT surgeon from Johns Hopkins, Chevalier Jackson, had condemned high tracheostomy because of the high incidence of laryngeal nerve paralysis and subsequent paralysis of the, of the larynx. So all we had was tracheostomy. Now, when I started in emergency medicine in 1971, the push for the development of emergency medicine had lagged behind the push for pre-hospital care training. So we actually had a, a somewhat of a national standard for EMTs at that point. And there had been a number of uh, people who were involved with EMT training, namely uh, Nader in Florida and Peter Safer in Pittsburgh, who came from a background of anesthesia. So much of the original management of the airway was yet again from the perspective of the anesthesiologist. When I started in emergency medicine, the physicians in emergency departments were all untrained, for the most part, were either unsophisticated, untrained, and basically ignorant house staff who were on their early years of training as interns or first-year residents in a variety of specialties, but mainly general surgery and general internal medicine. Or they were the, to be blunt, derelicts of medicine who were the physicians who couldn't find a job anywhere else. Um, most hospitals did not have emergency departments. When I trained in Oakland in the early 60s, Kaiser ran an emergency department and Highland County Hospital ran an emergency department and all the other hospitals in town had indeed a single room where doctors could meet patients, uh, sort of like after hour offices. And that was emergency medicine in the 60s. Well, one of the pushes for the development of emergency medicine came because most cities passed ordinances that you couldn't run a hospital without an emergency department. It wouldn't be licensed and you couldn't transfer patients to the city-county hospital, which was the two-tiered system at the time, for financial reasons. That was the sort of band-aid over the open fracture that most cities came up with to solve the problem of indigent care. But overnight, it converted the sleepy one-room emergency rooms into very busy emergency departments. When I interned at the University of Chicago in 1960, we saw a total of maybe 4,000 visits a year in our emergency department. Because when people get turned away, they don't go there. And they were accustomed at that time 
to getting all their care at Cook County Hospital. Even though many patients lived from two to four hours away from Cook County, and it was not easy to get there, especially in the winter. When I came back to be the first full-time director of emergency medicine in 1971, we were seeing 52,000 visits in the same emergency department because of that ordinance. People could not be turned away, so therefore they changed their allegiance from Cook County Hospital to the closer hospital. And they didn't have any notion of what was a public hospital, what was a private hospital was a university hospital. So I think that the pressure of the workload was what caused a great deal of the evolution of emergency medicine. We also had a very busy trauma service, which the university didn't want to have, but had no choice. And therefore, we had a lot of uh, critical patients mostly by human violence, because the university was not located in a geography that put it close to automobile traffic accidents. I hadn't been at the university more than a, a month or so when we uh, received from our own campus the wife of one of the fellows who'd been sunbathing in front of the hospital and who was attacked by some maniac who just started stabbing her. Another faculty wife, who was all of five foot two inches tall, was driving down the street with her two-year-old child, saw this attack happening, stopped the car, locked her child in it, and ran and chased the maniac away, threw the woman in the back of her car, and drove her, drove her to the emergency department which was about a minute away. I happened to be uh, working that shift, and at the time that she arrived, we were also working on developing a trauma team response to major trauma. And of course, one of the first tasks of the trauma team was to control the airway. RSI had not been invented yet for emergency medicine, I'm sure some form of it was being used in the operating room, but most emergency intubations at that time were performed without paralysis. Many physicians for major trauma patients didn't use anything but the endotracheal tube, and if it didn't pass, then they did a tracheostomy. Others used uh, some kind of sedation the most common form being a, a, a benzodiazepine because it was felt that um, barbiturates like uh, pentothal couldn't be used unless you had the anesthesia credential. And because most anesthesiologists wouldn't relinquish control over paralyzing agents, most of the emergency physicians had developed a, a necessity into a desirability, and I heard repeatedly, we don't need to paralyze patients to intubate them, we can do it without that. 
My experience in airway management as a general surgeon had been my months as a uh, rotating anesthesia resident as part of general surgery. And then when we finally got control of the laryngoscopes on our surgical floors, uh, the use of the laryngoscope in our general surgical practice. And I always found it difficult to intubate without paralysis. Having learned to use paralysis in the operating room, I couldn't see any reason why it couldn't be used in the emergency room any more than a scalpel didn't need to be restricted to an operating room and could be used anywhere by anybody who had a need for one. So it never occurred to me that I couldn't get permission to use it because I never asked for it. And when this woman came in, we simply called for some suctional calling, intubated her, and took care of her multiple stab wounds, which included a stab wound of the heart with a tamponade. So we relieved her tamponade after intubating her, put in a chest tube to relieve her impending tension pneumothorax, and sent her off to the OR, where she had her right ventricular stab wound repaired, as well as 12 stab wounds of her small intestine. She uh, did wonderfully well and left the hospital in about a week in quite good condition. As far as I know, that was the first use of a paralyzing agent in an emergency department for a trauma patient. It became part of our standard practice, and of course, it evolved into a more formal approach as we began to become not only more familiar with how to use it, but with the fact that we had other patients who were in need of intubation who were not quite on death's door like that first patient had been. So that's sort of a quick summary of the first RSI case without the uh, uh, rapid sequence. How difficult was it at that time, I guess we're talking maybe the early 70s, to get the tools you needed to provide emergency airway management, like getting laryngoscopes and getting the succinylcholine? What sort of battles did you have in terms of stocking the emergency department appropriately to manage these patients? Well, in most institutions, there was no problem at that point in time to get laryngoscopes. And uh, taken from the field... We had some esophageal operator airways for rescue devices. We had some boogies. Um, a smaller number of institutions did have problems stocking suctional choline because of fights with anesthesia. Those were generally won by saying, okay, then if you need to come for every intubation, you have a time constraint. You can't take longer than two minutes to get here, and you have to bring your airway cart with you instantly, otherwise we're going to stock these things. Well, there's no anesthesia service that could meet those time constraints. The University of Chicago anesthesia was on the eighth floor, and it took five minutes just to get an elevator. And so we never asked anesthesia. We just stopped it. 
in terms of tools you had available, it sounds like you pretty much had a direct laryngoscope and a scalpel, and the patient got intubated with, by one of those routes. Is that correct? Well, we did some nasal intubations, and we had uh, some of the special uh, nasotracheal tubes that had flexible tips, but pretty much that was it. In some emergency departments, uh, when people knew how to use them, there was a bronchoscope. There might be a fiber optic scope, but for those, but for the most part, those were reserved for anesthesia or the services that that did bronchoscopy, like pulmonary disease. And what percent of patients would you say in the early years, when you first were practicing emergency medicine? Uh, were intubated orally with a uh, direct laryngoscope, what percent had a nasal intubation, what percent had surgical airways at that time? We did quite a bit of surgical airway management because at that time we were concerned about converting a bony cervical spine fracture into a spinal cord injury. And there was no evidence about what was the safest approach to the traumatic airway. So by virtue of, how shall I say, theory alone, it was deemed that it was unsafe to intubate a cervical spine that was unstable orally, and that if the seep spine hadn't been cleared, radiologically, then you had to do a cricothyrotomy. So in those days, I would say maybe a quarter of our patients uh, got crikes out of, right out of the chute because we couldn't clear their C-spines quickly enough. So that would be their primary method of airway control. The initial attempt was with the surgical airway. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then how many patients uh, underwent intubation attempts by other methods and they required a rescue surgical airway. Was that a common phenomenon? That was uh, less common and it was more likely to be encountered in the overdose patient. I can remember uh, a number of those cases where we were intubating patients to protect their airways who were already sedated by their overdose and they went into laryngospasm, and we couldn't intubate them orally, so they ended up with a, a surgical airway. Nasotrach was uh, popular with some departments and not with others, but every time it was studied, it turned out not to be the safest form of airway management. Nasal tracheal intubation missed in about 25 to 30% of its attempts and had to be converted to an oral attempt. Also, depending on where you did it, um, my earliest experiences with extensive nasotracheal intubation was in Denver because the paramedics were using it. And almost 100% of the cases developed epistaxis, the uh, air in Denver being very dry. So we were not uh, wildly enthusiastic about nasotracheal information. So it sounds like the use of paralytic agents was controversial and there's some adversar adversarial relationships involved back then. When did you think it became 
kind of a standard in emergency medicine? How long did it take to catch on before most emergency departments were employing rapid sequence intubation? I would say within a year of that first case, most emergency departments uh, said, if they can do it, why can't we, and started doing it. We did not resolve the controversy for field intubation. And in fact, I was an early proponent for use of paralyzing agents in the field until we did a study in San Diego and showed that our mortality rate was unacceptably high. And the explanation, as far as I was able to understand it, was that we had too many paramedics to get them a degree of training that would make them successful. They were doing maybe one or two intubations a year. And therefore, when they had to do one, they weren't managing the patient's pre-intubation airway correctly. So we were measuring CO2 sats at the same time that we were doing this study, and they were sky high. The uh, mask valve bag ventilation uh, was not very successful in the hands of people who didn't have much experience. So we chose not to support paralyzed airways in the field. We'd also stopped doing prechotherotomies in the in our emergency department because we finally tried to study it. And for years, we tried to collect enough cases where we could do a prospective study comparing crike to other forms of intubation. Never could get enough cervical spine injuries to make any sense out of it. So then I started trying to collect cases of known complications from blind airway management. In other words, were there cases out there of patients who had a cervical spine fracture that was converted from non-paralysis to paralysis by oral intubation? And in five years, I could only find three cases. One was a patient who had ankylosing spondylitis and who had a minor automobile crash, came into an emergency department complaining of neck pain and was sent off to the emergency department to clear his C-spine. Probably a hopeless task given his ankylosing spondylitis. But he had no paralysis at the time he went off to x-ray. And in x-ray, the x-ray tech described how she carefully put pillows under his head so that she could extend his neck because he was in a state of permanent hyperflexion that most ankylosing spondylitic patients are. And at that point, he pithed and became a, a ventilator-dependent quad. Second case was a young trauma patient who was a motorcyclist who had been backed into by somebody leaving a driveway without seeing him. 
And at the scene, the paramedics described a broken neck, and they used a esophageal obturator airway to manage his airway, straightened his neck, took him to the emergency department, where by initial radiology, he had a hangman's fracture, but no paralysis. He was transferred from a rural hospital, which is the town where he went to college, to the care of a neurosurgeon. We didn't have formal trauma routes in those days. And for reasons that the neurosurgeon never explained, he decided that the patient should be converted to an endotracheal tube, but before doing that, he wanted flexion and extension views of the spine, even though there was a known cervical fracture there. And it was during his flexion view that he became a quadriplegic. The third case was another trauma case. It was a patient who had been uh, essentially run over by his own dump truck. He was taking a whiz on the dump truck tire and it fell on him. And he had multiple injuries and needed to be intubated. And in those days, we made every effort to clear the C-spine before intubation so that we wouldn't have to do a surgical airway. And while we were pulling on his shoulders, and we used to have a collar. One person would pull up on the, on the chin, another person would pull down on the arms, and that way we could get the entire cervical spine. Turns out this guy had a total ligamentous tear, and when we pulled up on his head, we distracted his spinal column and produced a quadriplegia. Those were the only three cases that I could collect in five years. Meanwhile, I asked a number of other uh, services what they did about it. For example, I met the chief of trauma from Salzburg, Austria, who was in charge of the helicopter for southern Austria. And I said, when you see a patient has a possible cervical fracture, either on your helicopter or in your emergency department, how do you intubate him? He says, orally. I said, well, aren't you worried about paralysis? He says, yes, but we're careful. Then I um, was doing a visiting professorship in Australia. And in Australia, there are only two spinal cord centers for the entire country. So any case that would have occurred, they would have encountered at the Spinal Cord Center. And while we were discussing some trauma cases with their residents, I was criticizing a resident for not doing a crike on a patient whose spine hadn't been cleared. And the Australia uh, emergency attending said, we don't do that. We just innovate them orally. We've never had a case of paralysis. Then I went back to Denver and I asked anesthesia, when you have a known cervical spine fracture and they're bringing the patient to the OR to be stabilized, how do you intubate the patient? 
He says very carefully. I thought, well, we've been doing it wrong. And that's when Richard Wolf and I wrote the paper on why we no longer needed to do cricothyrotomies, which was received with great hatred by my colleagues because now they had no reason ever to do a crike and they no longer knew, knew how to do one. But it really was better for patient care. Okay, let's go and bring things up now a little bit closer to the future and talk about um, the introduction of new technologies. For example, in my career, probably the biggest development has been the introduction of video laryngoscopy to facilitate intubation in the emergency department. What are your thoughts and experience about video laryngoscopy use? Well, thanks to you mainly, I think we have a new technology that is very worthwhile. And I am saddened by the unwillingness to use it, which of course mirrors all of the other technologic changes that I've ever seen in medicine, but especially in regards to the airway. And the arguments against its use are that, well, not every emergency department will have one. And if we train our residents in how to use it, then someday they're going to find themselves either in an austere environment, like Ken Iserson's South Pole, or in an emergency department that doesn't have a video laryngoscope. Well, my answer to that is, you know what the equipment is before you go to work. And I think that's the poorest argument I've ever heard for not using a technology that makes it safer for patients. It, in fact, reminds me of the use of the bovie that I learned how to use doing surgery. West Coast surgeons used the bovie. East Coast surgeons did not. And the reason mainly was on the East Coast, they used a lot of explosive anesthesia gas. So they couldn't use the bovie. Well, the West Coast surgeons didn't. And they learned how to operate with a bovie, which was a very effective method for cutting down blood loss during surgery. For example, the average gastric resection without a bovie required two to four units of blood, where the bovie required none. So I couldn't understand why everybody didn't learn how to use the bovie. And when I went into a private practice of surgery in a small town in Wyoming, actually three small towns, and they didn't have a bovie, I bought one with my own money and took it with me when I went to the other towns that also didn't have a bovie. And I would suggest that that's the approach that we ought to use for video laryngoscopy. I think you've demonstrated as conclusively as I need to be convinced that first pass is more effective, first pass is safer, and that there are fewer complications with a video laryngoscope, and that it works better for complex airways that are going to be difficult to manage right out of the chute. Will we overcome this reluctance eventually? But it has taken longer than I would have hoped. Where do you see emergency airway management going in the future, like 
50 years from now, what do you think we'll be doing for airway management? Well, my ability to predict the future is, is, is probably best exemplified by the stock that I bought once that had a reverse split. Um, I think we're going to be doing pretty much the same kinds of things that we're doing today. I think that uh, the video scopes will have made it as safe as we can make it, but it's a blind procedure and there's no way to make it into a completely visible procedure. There's always going to be problems of anatomy, there's always going to be problems of combativeness, there's always going to be problems of anatomical distortion. And we can do the best we can do, uh, but we cannot make it perfect. Will we have better rescue devices? Probably. Uh, will there be better video scopes? Absolutely. There's no end to the imagination of biologic engineers. But I don't think we're ever going to be removed from the need for controlling a patient's airway to protect it. I have a couple questions coming from to both of you uh, because hearing from <clears throat> kind of the get-go to where John has taken over with uh, his airway management uh, research uh, and having trained under both of you, um, kind of seeing where I've where I've been at in the last few years, what do you feel is going to uh, be another uh, step in between intubation and uh, kind of staving off intubation. We've done a lot of a lot of research on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, on high flow nasal cannula, on um, a lot of these interventions with more technology, finding that in some patients it works great, and maybe you don't need to intubate them. And then on the other hand, we find patients that no, they're going to fail no matter what. Do you think that we're just going to get better at patient selection of who's going to use this new technology, or are we going to get better at is intubation the new crike that uh, you know we're just we'll just find a better method to prevent having to do all of this? Well, I have to say, from uh, my experience, non-invasive intubation uh, ventilation has really had a dramatic impact on the number of intubations we do in the ED. Uh, when I was a resident, we really didn't have non-invasive ventilation, and all these patients got intubated. Now, in select patients, I think it's an effective way to avoid intubation. You just have to know which patients those are. And it's primarily patients that have rapidly reversible disease. So the patients in CHF pulmonary edema, where you put them on BiPAP and you give them um, some preload and afterload reduction and some diuresis, and those patients you can turn around in 30 minutes and avoid the need for intubation. Likewise with COPD, where if you give them some bronchodilators and steroids and um, can help uh, support the, the respiratory system for a while, those patients also, also can avoid intubation. And then the patients that don't do well with non-invasive ventilation are the patients that have disease processes that are going to take a while to overcome and you can't support them that long. For example, multifocal pneumonia or ARDS. Those patients just are going to take a long time to heal and non-invasive is just not a really reasonable bridge in those types of patients. I think that that's a, a required a certain amount of experience once uh, we had the non-invasive ventilation. I'm less sanguine about it for 
COPD patients because there's some evidence that the really bad COPD patients who fail to be intubated early on have a higher mortality rate uh, than those who are not treated with non-invasive. But that may again be a selection process as opposed to a failure of, of non-invasive ventilation. I think interestingly enough, in other countries, non-invasive ventilation has been used as a political tool rather than as a clinical indicator. In Italy, they have developed what we would call a step-down unit, but in Italy, it's a step-up unit. They have a very small number of ICU beds, and the physicians that run the step-up units are reluctant to put patients in the ICU if for no other reason than they lose control of the patient. And they have a rule that they cannot admit patients to the ICU unless they're intubated. So by not intubating, they can keep the patient in their step-up unit, which is basically an ICU in which patients do not get intubated. And I think that as a result, they manage a fair number of conditions without intubation that we would automatically intubate. And I would have to say that their complications are just as high as we think they would be, but it doesn't seem to bother them. The other question I had is kind of regarding the evolving technology. I think that there are some very clear-cut patients that are going to go quickly down the pathway to a surgical crack. I think that uh, there are some patients that are very clearly going to need an endotracheal intubation. And there's a lot more, uh, especially in pediatrics, some uh, suggestion that maybe intubation is not necessarily uh, the route we need to go because, in, at least in kids, it's a more rare procedure in the pediatric emergency department. Um, our pediatric residents are now being asked not to perform intubation, but to demonstrate the knowledge of how to perform intubation which, John, I think you can attest that that's not the same thing. <laughs> uh, but people like Darren Brody from New Mexico have started to suggest maybe we, if you don't intubate kids all the time, maybe a kid in extremis is the wrong kid to intubate. Maybe that kid with croup uh, that's severe enough to require intubation or uh, you know, a, a specific airway injury, upper GI bleed, some of these uh, airway protections needs a cuffed endotracheal tube to protect, protect from aspiration and to guard the airway. But uh, more and more people are suggesting superglottic airways uh, just be placed to manage oxygenation and ventilation that maybe airway protection isn't as important uh, for people and it's certainly a lot easier to cram a superglottic airway down a patient's uh, uh, pharynx instead of actually placing the tube very delicately. Do you think that's going to be uh, cutting into the in intubation business a little bit at all as we start to figure out which patients need it and which ones don't? I guess the way I see the superglottic airway use is more of as a temporizing device or a bridging device. I don't see it as a permanent um, intervention. So let's say you have someone that you have difficulty intubating, put them, put in an LMA in and transfer them or have someone with more expertise come do the intubation. But I don't really see that replacing endotracheal intubation as a long-term airway management technique. 
I think it's a bridge to something else. Some of this is philosophic. I have always been reluctant to accept the fact that we are going to make some patients a lot worse by not doing what they need. And in order to salvage that small group of patients, we have to intubate a group of patients who probably could have gotten along without it. For example, the traumatized airway, a gunshot wound of the neck. Uh, my approach to that is any injury that could possibly distort the anatomy should be intubated before the distortion occurs. And we know that probably if you take 10 such patients, four out of the 10 are going to be the ones that distort, and the other six probably would have gotten by without it. Well, my cost-benefit ratio is that I would rather intubate six patients who didn't need it than have four deaths who didn't need to die. And I think some of that is true with the pediatric population. And yes, it's a, it's a circular argument. If you don't do it often, then you're not going to be good enough to do it. Well, how do you get experience? You can only get experience by having had bad experiences. And therefore, like anything else that we teach in emergency medicine, you learn how to do a difficult technical task under the observation and supervision of people who have that experience. Then it won't be such a difficult task. And I think a lot of the people who are telling us not to do it are telling us that because they're scared to do it and don't know how to do it, and therefore we couldn't possibly have that capacity. John, I'm going to ask you the same question you asked Peter. Where do you see airway management in the next 50 years? Well, I think right now we have a, a wide array of tools to manage the anatomically difficult airway between hyperangulated video scopes and flexible fiber optic scopes. We could pretty much overcome the anatomic barriers and get a tube in there. I think the next frontier is maintaining the physiologic stability of patients during intubation. And I think uh, the introduction of high flow nasal oxygen is going to be a, a big game changer for us because that allows you to maintain oxygenation in patients that would otherwise deteriorate too rapidly and you'd wind up in a can intubate, can oxygenate scenario and with a surgical airway. Now with high flow nasal oxygen, you could actually support that patient for quite a while till you can get an endotracheal tube in. So I think the next frontier is really optimizing the physiology um, to allow us to intubate these patients safely without having critical hypoxemia or profound hypotension and cardiovascular collapse. And I think the ultrasound is actually another technology that will be useful. Uh, if we use the ultrasound to do bedside echoes before intubation, I think this will allow us to assess the cardiovascular status and avoid, you know, catastrophic uh, cardiovascular collapse in some of these patients that were not aware what their heart was doing, in particular patients with severe heart, uh, right heart failure that's undiagnosed. It's interesting that as we develop new techniques, we've forgotten techniques from the past that worked well and that I think should probably be reintroduced. One of those is the oxygen tent. You were talking earlier about multilobe pneumonia, not doing well with non-invasive ventilation, but it doesn't do real well with intubation either. And yet, when I first became a physician, we didn't intubate those patients. We put them in an oxygen tent which is basically a high oxygen environment. And it was able to raise their hypoxia 
to the point where we could treat their infection without an obnoxious foreign body uh, to plug up the, and stimulate their secretions even more. So I think hopefully what we can develop over the next 50 years is some means of, of re restoring the historical tools that worked well for us as opposed to just uh, more and more variations on a theme by intubator. As a pediatrician, I would love to bring back croup tents, if only for the nostalgia of it. But um, Peter, I think one of the most striking things in having you talk about the history of airway management is uh, some of the uh, just dogmatic approaches that people would have to things. And the f I was really shocked that you were absolutely not allowed to use succinylcholine. And then in a year, that was accepted as, okay, no big deal. It seems like things are a lot more difficult to push through, but a lot of it seemed, just like you said, you realize this was the right thing to do, so you kind of went after it. Um, it seems like as we kind of have our territory more defined, especially in the role of airway management, that we've decided a lot more, this is what's right for the patient, this is what's based in the literature, and that we make these decisions rather than necessarily cowering to what is uh, Monday morning quarterbacked for us. Um, so I, I think that's pretty incredible um, just to see this kind of progress. So thank you guys for coming.